0: Amen. So, full disclosure, I have always been fascinated by atheists. It's true, and I mean that like respectfully. I find them interesting. I think many atheists are very intelligent people, uh, and and I'm just, like, I find it fascinating the reasons that would lead someone to conclude that the world is only physical, Like there's no spiritual dynamic to it that, uh, you know, in essence, every spiritual experience any human has ever had is like a false delusion. That's a fascinating conclusion to me. And so I like to read like atheist stuff and their best arguments for a godless existence. I feel like, you know, part of it as a person of faith is I just, I want to challenge myself and see if there's any weight to the arguments, Recently I was doing this and I was listening to the famously atheist comedian, Ricky Gervais, um, and he summarized uh, what is one of the most potent arguments for atheism with a joke. And I'm going to share this joke with you, not necessarily because it's funny, but because I think it captures a perspective uh, that leads many people to reject God. And as people of faith, we need to understand this so that we can interact with it wisely and graciously and be advocates for faith and advocates for God. Here's the joke. Joke is about a Jewish man who survived a Nazi concentration camp. And he lived to a ripe old age and eventually he died and he went to heaven. Uh, He met God in that moment, and he said, God, I have a joke for you. And God said, go ahead, I'd I'd love to hear a joke. And he went on to tell God a very inappropriate joke about the Holocaust. And God didn't laugh. God said, I don't think that's very funny. I don't think we should tell jokes about human suffering. And the man looked at God and said, well, I guess you had to be there. That's tough, right? Right? This argument, one of the strongest cases that many atheists make against having faith is the presence of human suffering, is the fact that God doesn't do something about it. Some of that suffering has been perpetuated in the name of God. Like, how can this good, all-powerful God exist when humans do so much evil? In this interview, Gervais summarized his argument with this quip. He said, just know that when you pray, you're praying for help to the God who allowed the Holocaust. It's a bold statement. And I think as people of faith, it's a statement like that we need to wrestle with. That's a statement that sounds so compelling until you think really deeply about it. Because when you think deeply about it, you realize this, it is rooted in an assumption And the assumption is that we humans are good, that we deserve good, and that God owes us something, and because of that, evil shouldn't happen. And honestly, I think those assumptions are a pretty big leap, because if you look at the data, just like human history, look at it objectively, I think we would all conclude maybe the opposite is in fact true, that as a species, we humans, we gravitate towards selfishness and manipulation of each other, And obviously the Holocaust is the most extreme example of the evil that we are capable of. But if you look at the evidence, I think you would see that the oddity, the anomaly, is not evil. That's actually what you would expect based on the human race and how we are. The miracle and the outlying data that we have to account for uh, is that there is anything other than evil, that there is any goodness, that anyone has ever had a moment of selfless love. That is the miracle. We shouldn't treat evil like it's this invader that God allows into our otherwise blissful existence. Goodness is the weird thing. Goodness is the invader. That's what should give us pause. And this is, of course, it comes out of the Bible. It teaches us that we are way worse than any of us would be willing to admit. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Huh. I've read a lot of atheist writing um, A lot of it is rooted in this idea that we are good people, um, that that we're not constantly motivated by selfishness, that we're not constantly trying to manipulate and control each other, and that ultimately God may be the one responsible for the evil in the world, not us. I just can't buy it, though. To believe that, you have to ignore mountains of historical data, and I think the evidence requires us to actually flip the premise and to say that the goodness in this world is God's. It's the evidence that He's here because why would we expect anything good to come from a species steeped in self-focus and self-preservation? What we produce is the bad stuff. And I know that hurts a little bit to admit, but if you ignore our human capacity for evil, you will wind up having all sorts of misplaced anger at God for the bad things that we humans have done on this planet. There is no moment where our misplaced anger at God over our own evil is more truly and decisively flipped on its head than on the cross. That's what we've been studying these last few weeks. On the cross, that's where we see the score. That's where we see the evilness of us humans in full bloom. And we see the goodness of God entering into that evil to suffer with us. Ultimately, we know God was as present in the Holocaust, bearing witness to the evil that our hearts can produce, as he was present on the cross, feeling that evil in his body firsthand. You know, as we've been walking through these last seven statements of Jesus on the cross, uh, today we're going to come to what I think is the hardest one. I mean, all of these were costly. You remember, Jesus had to press down on his feet and lift on his arms just to get the air in his lungs to gasp out everything that he said on the cross. But I would submit to you today that there is not one of these seven statements that cost Jesus more dearly than what he says today. Let's read this together. Read with me from Matthew 27. Matthew records this. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were open. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. It's a striking moment, and I think it points us to a reality that that we have to accept, is that many of us have a very poor understanding of just how bad we are as humans. Like this is a moment, it kind of fights for our attention, it rips away our naivety. This is the moment where God himself Father, Son, Holy Spirit suffered in ways too excruciating for us to fathom because of our evil, because of our badness. We can describe it a few different ways to try to wrap our heads around it. We could describe it theologically. Like this was the moment where Jesus bore the penalty for every sin ever committed in his body. Like this was the moment where God the Father, what we understand is he poured out all of his wrath upon the sun, where every ounce of anger that God had, this God of justice had about the evil that we've done uh, to one another, to him, that it was emptied on the crucified Jesus. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so the reason that God like looks at us with nothing but love in his heart for us is because of this moment. This was the moment that he emptied all of his judgment for our sin, all of his wrath for our sin onto Jesus. And he just frankly doesn't have it anymore because Jesus took it all upon himself right here in this moment. Theologically, that's what's happening. But we could also just describe this relationally. This was a a tragic relational moment. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they existed for all time in this like perfect harmony and love. And in this moment, for the first time, the Son knew separation. He was for the first time utterly alone. And in this moment, the Father and the Holy Spirit, they knew loss for the first time because they had turned their back on the forsaken Son and that cost them dearly. What, what is really tragic and just breaks my heart in the scene is, you remember just a, f- a few hours earlier, not even 24 hours before, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to God, and he uses the term Abba, Father, which is a term just dripping with familiarity. It's like Daddy or Papa. It's like the most familiar word he could have used for God. But here in this moment, He heartbreakingly uses this name for God, Eloi. It is the most like general and formal kind of very distant name for God that he could have used. He is lost. He is abandoned. Like this intimacy that he enjoyed with his father for all eternity. It has suddenly been ripped away in this moment. And it's incredibly tragic just from a relational perspective. But we could even just describe it from a physical perspective. It's hard to take. Jesus' body was broken. His back was whipped to shreds. His feet and his hands pierced by nails. His body was suffering an agony. And this was objectively perhaps the most excruciating death a human could experience. But even all of that, all of that together, the theology of it, the relationship of it, the physical nature of it, it falls short in capturing just what is happening here. I would say it this way, there has never been a greater moment of human suffering than this moment. Never. And while I understand what Ricky Gervais is trying to say when he tells us we're praying to the God who allowed the Holocaust. That's true. It is true that we are, but also what's true is we're praying to this God. We're praying to the God who suffered the most We're praying to the God who has the most pain in his life. We're praying to the God who bore all the sins, even the sins of the Holocaust, in this moment. We are praying to the God who walked in incomprehensible suffering just so he could unmake what our wicked hearts have produced so that he could redeem it all, all of our suffering, so that he could push back our evil with his love and make sense out of our pain. There's something about this moment that hurts um, because you you can't look at it and know that it was for you without also feeling it. Gosh, there is a cost to our wickedness. You know, the problem with evil, like it's a real problem. We have to wrestle with it. But the problem of evil in the world, in my mind, it doesn't challenge the concept or the existence of a good God. The problem of evil in the world, like the Holocaust, it challenges the concept of the existence of good people. And I think the cross reveals once and for all what a good God does in the face of evil people evil people like us. He doesn't choose to destroy us, which would maybe be rational. He doesn't choose to control us. He loves us and he redeems us and he enters into the suffering so that at the end of it all, with all this evil, he is the one who has suffered the most. This moment, and I think this word from the cross, it is God's answer to human evil. Now, we're talking big concepts here. We're talking at a theological level, and I I, want to try to make this a little bit more visceral and concrete for us. Can I make a few observations about what this moment actually means for you and I? Like, like here's an observation. I just want to say this. I think it's important for us to say this a lot. Jesus already carried your sin and shame and your judgment to the cross, so you should set those things down. Let him carry it. I I know us, we all do the same thing. Like we hold on to some feelings of shame and guilt about the things that we've done, about the things that we struggle with. And it's kind of like we think that, well, Jesus' great sacrifice on the cross, plus my feeling bad about myself, that will lead to redemption. But really only one of those things is needed. It's Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. So we need to stop carrying around shame and guilt. That's not the point. Jesus carried that stuff to the cross. He was forsaken in that. That moment. It cost him dearly. Let him carry that stuff. And also, I, let's just observe this together. What Jesus does in this moment, what Jesus did for us, it is so complete. There is nothing left to do. You and I have nothing to earn and nothing to prove. We just have faith in the promise, which is great because we couldn't earn it or prove it anyway. And yet sometimes we labor under this burden of earning this thing that God freely gives us, like we're Private Ryan or something. Do do you know what I mean by Private Ryan or something? I don't know if you know that reference. Remember the movie, uh, the end of the movie, Saving Private Ryan, uh, this platoon of men who was led by Tom Hanks' character have battled their way across France to try to rescue this private, Private Ryan played by Matt Damon. Um, And spoiler alert, like seriously, I'm going to spoil the whole movie, Um, like they all die, right, in trying to rescue Private Ryan, but they do it, and they rescue him, and with his dying breath, at the very end of the movie, Tom Hanks' character is looking up at Private Ryan, and he says, earn this, and then he dies, you remember that? Like that, that has to be one of the all-time top three most messed up things ever put on film. Uh, I love that movie, but that was a very messed up scene. And I want you to note something about the difference between those dying words and Jesus dying words. In Jesus dying breath, he never said earn this. That's not one of his last seven words. So, you know, just at ease, soldier. I mean, we can be off the hook for that. The reality of this moment, it is not meant to make us feel guilty or dutiful. It is supposed to make us feel free. And it's humbling, but it's supposed to make us feel loved. Not like we have to go out and earn it. He didn't do what he did so that you and I would finally start uh, falling in line. He did what he did because he knew we would never fall in line. That's why he did it. That's why he made this sacrifice. He had no illusions about what we were. He had no illusions about what we would become. He loved us anyway because that's who he is. And if we're not enjoying that love because we're so caught up in trying to become worthy of it, like honestly, it's a slap in the face to our Savior. And you know what? Even that slap in the face to Jesus was covered by this moment. So you'd never have to make up for it. When we see this moment of the worst suffering imaginable, God of the universe, suffering at the hands of our wickedness, more than any human ever has in the history of history. It needs to lead us to honesty, where we see that we are wholly corrupted by selfishness. And we're not the worst human, but we are wholly corrupted by selfishness. But I think it also needs to lead us to wonder, We must be deeply loved, more deeply loved than we could have ever imagined. And if we are that loved, we should enjoy it. We should take it in. We should let go of our shame. We should let go of uh, these like shallow attempts at worthiness. Just revel in the fact that God so loved this evil world, you and I. You know, one of the images I love in this passage, the way Matthew records it, um, is right after Jesus died, the curtain in the temple, it rips from top to bottom like from heaven to earth. And uh, if you know about the temple, you know that curtain, it separated everyone from what was called the Holy of Holies. This was the place where God dwelt. Like, and, and nobody was allowed to go there. It was this fabric that in essence hid God from us. It's like he's back there, we can't go back there. If we look at him, we might even die. Um, and so part of the implication of this moment where the curtain rips from top to bottom, it is as if God said to the world, I want you to see me. Whatever you thought I looked like, now you know my true face is the forsaken face of Jesus. That's who I am. I want you to see me. It reminds me of something. Um, the single best sermon I have ever heard preached was preached by a pastor named Danielle Strickland. Um, she talked about, uh, the sermon was about learning to see Jesus, or see people the way that Jesus sees them, and she tells this story, an amazing story, about flying internationally on a small plane, and she was seated uh, right beside a Muslim Shiite woman wearing a full burqa that obscured her whole face except for just her eyes. She starts talking to this woman. and She finds out that she had just graduated from Muslim theological school, uh, and she asked, well, what did you study there? And the woman tells her, I studied in how to evangelize evangelize Christians to Islam. So Danielle looks at her and says, I'm a Christian, give it your best shot, (laughs) Uh, which is a great response. And so she does, and she just listens, and uh, as this woman tries to convert her to Islam. And then the Shiite woman finishes, and she looks at Danielle, and she says, okay, now it's your turn. Uh, Can you imagine? Of course, Danielle's thinking like all of the apologetics and all the things she studied of how do you convert a a Muslim to become a Christian? And she felt like God kind of cut through that stuff and just said, hey, just just tell her your story. Just tell her what I've done. Um, And so Danielle recounts her story about how as a 17-year-old in jail, she encountered Jesus' love for the first time. And she tells the story and then she ends the story And there's a silence for a minute. And this woman looks at her and says, do you wanna see my face? And this Muslim woman in this plane lifts up her veil uh, and reveals her face to Danielle for a few seconds. And Danielle realizes this is a 16 year old girl. She said she had dimples and freckles and kind of this mischievous smile on her face. And then she pulls her veil back down And she says, was I what you expected? Danielle goes on to make this point that that this is what makes Jesus' love so remarkable. He sees our true face, right? Regardless of all the barriers that we put up, he sees us. Even when we hide from him, he sees us. And he didn't go to the cross in this moment like believing the best of us. Like he went to the cross in this moment knowing the worst of us, seeing it all and still loving us anyway. And she says that's how we believers need to love other people. When we see their worst, we need to see them as they are, love them anyway. And it was a great sermon and a great illustration. I was reading through the story in Matthew, though, and it reminded me of that, but in a different way. It made me think about that story. When we look at God, most of us don't see him as he is. We see him as we want to see him, and we project all sorts of things onto God. And then when he doesn't live up to our projected expectations, sometimes we blame him, we get angry at him. Some of us walk away from him and say, I don't even believe he exists. But this moment on the cross, could we just consider this moment with the curtain ripped? It was as if God was saying to the human race, would you like to see my face? And on the cross, he tore away everything that concealed him. And it's as if God was saying to us, here I am. Am I what you expected? I'm learning a really big part of faith, uh, being a person of faith especially, is just receiving God as he is, not as we expect him to be. You know, there's a lot of really awful things that happen in our world. I've, I've seen some horrible things, and I'm sure you have too. It's fair in those moments to wonder about God. It's fair to wonder what he's really like. It's fair to wonder if he's really even there. This is where the cross comes into our life, though, because into all of those wonderings, we hear Jesus gasp out, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. The God who in the face of our evil chose to suffer more than all of us instead of choosing to destroy us or and control us. He is not what any of us would expect it. But that's what's so compelling and convincing to me about Jesus. Would you like to see his face? God would very much like you to see it so that you would know his love is bigger than your evil, so that you would know you don't have to carry around all that shame and guilt anymore, so that you would stop trying to prove yourself and earn something from him, so that you would know that he is with you even when he doesn't stop your suffering. This is the face of God Eloi, Eloi, Sabak sabachthani. Is he what you expected?